Section 29 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Search into the Nature of Society The generality of moralists and philosophers have hitherto agreed that there could be no virtue without self-denial, but a late author, who is now much read by men of sense, is of a contrary opinion, and imagines that men, without any trouble or violence upon themselves, may be naturally virtuous. He seems to require and expect goodness in his species, as we do a sweet taste in grapes and china oranges, of which, if any of them are sour, we boldly pronounce that they are not come to that perfection their nature is capable of. This noble writer, for it is the Lord Shaftesbury, I mean, in his characteristics, fancies that as a man is made for society, so he ought to be born with a kind of affection to the whole, of which he is a part, and a propensity to seek the welfare of it. In pursuance of this supposition, he calls every action performed with regard to the public good virtuous, and all selfishness wholly excluding such a regard vice. In respect to our species, he looks upon virtue and vice as permanent realities that must ever be the same in all countries and all ages, and imagines that a man of sound understanding, by following the rules of good sense, may not only find out that pulchrum et honestum, both in morality and the works of art and nature, but likewise govern himself by his reason with as much ease and readiness as a good rider manages a well-taught horse by the bridle. The attentive reader, who perused the foregoing part of this book, will soon perceive that two systems cannot be more opposite than his lordship's and mine. His notions, I confess, are generous and refined. They are a high compliment to humankind, and capable, by a little enthusiasm, of inspiring us with the most noble sentiments concerning the dignity of our exalted nature. What pity it is that they are not true! I would not advance thus much if I had not already demonstrated, in almost every page of this treatise, that the solidity of them is inconsistent with our daily experience. But, to leave not the least shadow of an objection that might be made unanswered, I design to expiate on some things which hitherto I have but slightly touched upon, in order to convince the reader not only that the good and amiable qualities of men are not those that make him, beyond other animals, a sociable creature, but, moreover, that it would be utterly impossible either to raise any multitudes into a populous, rich, and flourishing nation, or, when so raised, to keep and maintain them in that condition without the assistance of what we call evil, both natural and moral. The better to perform what I have undertaken, I shall previously examine into the reality of the pulchrum et honestum, the tokalon that the ancients have talked of so much. The meaning of this is to discuss whether there be a real worth and excellency in things, a preeminence of one above another, which everybody will always agree to that well understands them, or that there are few things, if any, that have the same esteem paid them, and which the same judgment is passed upon in all countries and all ages. When we first set out in quest of this intrinsic worth, and find one thing better than another, and a third better than that, and so on, we begin to entertain great hopes of success. But when we meet with several things that are all very good or all very bad, we are puzzled, and agree not always with ourselves, much less with others. There are different faults as well as beauties, 
that as modes and fashions alter and men vary in their tastes and humors, will be differently admired or disapproved of. Judges of painting will never disagree in opinion when a fine picture is compared to the daubing of a novice. But how strangely have they differed as to the works of eminent masters! There are parties among connoisseurs, and few of them agree in their esteem as to ages and countries, and the best pictures bear not always the best prices. A noted original will be ever worth more than any copy that can be made of it by an unknown hand, though it should be better. The value that is set on paintings depends not only on the name of the master, and the time of his age he drew them in, but likewise in a great measure on the scarcity of his works. But, what is still more unreasonable, the quality of the persons in whose possession they are, as well as the length of time they have been in great families, and if the cartons, now at Hampton Court, were done by a less famous hand than that of Raphael, and had a private person for their owner, who would be forced to sell them? They would never yield the tenth part of the money which, with all their gross faults, they are now esteemed to be worth. Notwithstanding all this, I will readily own that the judgment to be made of painting might become universal certainty, or at least less alterable and precarious than almost anything else. The reason is plain, there is a standard to go by that always remains the same. Painting is an imitation of nature, a copying of things which men have everywhere before them. My good-humored reader, I hope, will forgive me if, thinking on this glorious invention, I make a reflection a little out of season, though very much conducive to my main design, which is, that valuable as the art is I speak of, we are beholden to an imperfection in the chief of our senses for all the pleasures and ravishing delight we receive from this happy deceit. I shall explain myself. Air and space are no objects of sight, but as soon as we can see with the least attention, we observe that the bulk of the things we see is lessened by degrees as they are further remote from us, and nothing but experience gained from these observations can teach us to make any tolerable guesses at the distance of things. If one born blind should remain so till twenty, and then be suddenly blessed with sight, he would be strangely puzzled as to the difference of distances, and hardly able immediately, by his eyes alone, to determine which was nearest to him, a post almost within reach of his stick, or a steeple that should be half a mile off. Let us look as narrowly as we can upon a hole in the wall that has nothing but the open air behind it, and we shall not be able to see otherwise, but that the sky fills up the vacuity, and is as near to us as the back part of the stones that circumscribe the space where they are wanting. This circumstance, not to call it a defect in our sense of seeing, makes us liable to be imposed upon, and everything but motion may, by art, be represented to us on a flat, in the same manner as we see them in life and nature. If a man had never seen this art put into practice, a looking-glass might soon convince him that such a thing was possible, and I cannot help thinking, but that the reflections from very smooth and well-polished bodies made upon our eyes must have given the first handle to the inventions of drawings and painting. In the works of nature, worth and excellency are as uncertain, and even in human creatures, what is beautiful in one country is not so in another. How whimsical is the florist in his choice! Sometimes the tulip, sometimes the auricula, and at other times the carnation shall engross his esteem, 
and every year a new flower in his judgment beats all the old ones, though it is much inferior to them in both color and shape. Three hundred years ago men were shaved as closely as they are now. Since that they have wore beards and cut them in vast variety of forms that were all as becoming, when fashionable, as now they would be ridiculous. How mean and comically a man looks that is otherwise well-dressed, in a narrow-brimmed hat, when everybody wears broad ones. And again, how monstrous is a very great hat, when the other extreme has been in fashion for a considerable time. Experience has taught us that these modes seldom last above ten or twelve years, and a man of threescore must have observed five or six revolutions of them at least. Yet the beginnings of these changes, though we have seen several, seem always uncouth, and are offensive afresh whenever they return. What mortal can decide which is the handsomest, abstract from the mode in being, to wear great buttons or small ones? The many ways of laying out a garden judiciously are almost innumerable, and what is called beautiful in them varies according to the different tastes of nations and ages. In grass plats, knots, and parterres, a great diversity of forms is generally agreeable, but a round may be as pleasing to the eye as a square. An oval cannot be more suitable to one place than it is possible for a triangle to be to another, and the preeminence an octagon has over an hexagon is no greater in figures than at hazard eight has above six among the chances. Churches, ever since Christians have been able to build them, resemble the form of a cross, with the upper end pointing toward the east, and an architect where there is room and it can be conveniently done, who should neglect it, would be thought to have committed an unpardonable fault. But it would be foolish to expect this of a Turkish mosque or a pagan temple. Among the many beneficial laws that have been made these hundred years, it is not easy to name one of greater utility, and, at the same time, more exempt from all inconveniences than that which regulated the dresses of the dead. Those who are old enough to take notice of things when that act was made, and are yet alive, must remember the general clamor that was made against it. At first, nothing could be more shocking to thousands of people than that they were to be buried in woolen, and the only thing that made the law supportable was that there was room left for people of some fashion to indulge their weakness without extravagancy. Considering the other expenses of funerals where mourning is given to several, and rings to a great many. The benefit that accrues to the nation from it is so visible that nothing ever could be said in any reason to condemn it, which, in few years, made the horror conceived against it lessen every day. I observed then that young people who had seen but few in their coffins did the soonest strike in with the innovation, but that those who, when the act was made, had buried many friends and relations, remained averse to it the longest, and I remember many that never could be reconciled to it to their dying day. By this time, burying in linen being almost forgot, it is the general opinion that nothing could be more decent than woolen, and the present manner of dressing a corpse, which shows that our liking or disliking of things chiefly depends on mode and custom, and the precept and example of our betters, and such whom one way or other we think to be superior to us. In morals there is no greater certainty. Plurality of wives is odious among Christians, and all the wit and learning of a great genius in defense of it has been rejected with contempt. But polygamy is not shocking to a Mahometan, 
what men have learned from their infancy enslaves them, and the force of custom warps nature, and at the same time imitates her in such a manner that it is often difficult to know which of the two we are influenced by. In the East, formerly sisters married brothers, and it was meritorious for a man to marry his mother. Such alliances are abominable, but it is certain that, whatever horror we conceive at the thoughts of them, there is nothing in nature repugnant against them but what is built upon mode and custom. A religious Mahometan that has never tasted any spiritous liquor, and has often seen people drunk, may receive as great an aversion against wine, as another with us of the least morality and education may have against lying with his sister, and both imagine that their antipathy proceeds from nature. Which is the best religion is a question that has caused more mischief than all other questions together. Ask it at Peking, at Constantinople, and at Rome, and you will receive three distinct answers extremely different from one another, yet all of them equally positive and preemptory. Christians are well assured of the falsity of the pagan and Mahometan superstitions. As to this point, there is a perfect union and concord among them, but inquire of the several sects they are divided into, which is the true church of Christ, and all of them will tell you it is theirs, and to convince you, go together by the ears. It is manifest, then, that the hunting after this pulcrum et honestum is not much better than a wild goose chase that is but little to be depended on. But this is not the greatest fault I find with it. The imaginary notions that men may be virtuous without self-denial are a vast inlet to hypocrisy, which being once made habitual, we must not only deceive others, but likewise become altogether unknown to ourselves. And in an instance I am going to give, it will appear how, for want of duly examining himself, this might happen to a person of quality, of parts, and erudition, one every way resembling the author of the characteristics himself. A man that has been brought up in ease and affluence, if he is of a quiet, indolent nature, learns to shun everything that is troublesome, and chooses to curb his passions, more because of the inconveniences that arise from the eager pursuit after pleasure, and the yielding to all the demands of our inclinations, than any dislike he has to sensual enjoyments. And it is possible that a person educated under a great philosopher, who was a mild and good-natured as well as able tutor, may, in such happy circumstances, have a better opinion of his inward state than it really deserves, and believe himself virtuous, because his passions lie dormant. He may form fine notions of the social virtues and the contempt of death, write well of them in his closet, and talk eloquently of them in company, but you shall never catch him fighting for his country, or laboring to retrieve any national losses. A man that deals in metaphysics may easily throw himself into an enthusiasm, and really believe that he does not fear death while it remains out of sight. But should he be asked, why, after his having this intrepidity either from nature or acquired by philosophy, he did not follow arms when his country was involved in war, or when he saw the nation daily robbed by those at the helm, and the affairs of the exchequer perplexed, why he did not go to court, and make use of all his friends and interests to be a lord treasurer, that by his integrity and wise management he might restore the public credit. It is probable he would answer that he loved retirement, had no other ambition than to be a good man, and never aspired to have any share in the government or that he hated all flattery and slavish attendance, the insincerity of courts and bustle of the world. 
I am willing to believe him. But may not a man of an indolent temper and unactive spirit say, and be sincere in all this, and at the same time indulge his appetites without being able to subdue them, though his duty summons him to it? Virtue consists in action, and whoever is possessed of this social love and kind affection to his species, and by his birth or quality can claim any post in the public management, ought not to sit still when he can be serviceable, but exert himself to the utmost for the good of his fellow subjects. Had this noble person been of a warlike genius or a boisterous temper, he would have chose another part in the drama of life, and preached a quite contrary doctrine. For we are ever pushing our reason which way soever we feel passion to draw it, and self-love pleads to all human creatures for their different views, still furnishing every individual with arguments to justify their inclinations. That boasted middle way, and the calm virtues recommended in the characteristics, are good for nothing but to breed drones, and might qualify a man for the stupid enjoyments of a monastic life, or at best a country justice of peace, but they would never fit him for labor and assiduity, or stir him up to great achievements and perilous undertakings. Man's natural love of ease and idleness, and proneness to indulge his sensual pleasures, are not to be cured by precept. His strong habits and inclinations can only be subdued by passions of greater violence. Preach and demonstrate to a coward the unreasonableness of his fears, and you will not make him valiant, more than you can make him taller by bidding him to be ten foot high, whereas the secret to raise courage, as I have made it public on remark on line 321, is almost infallible. The fear of death is the strongest when we are in our greatest vigor, and our appetite is keen, when we are sharp-sighted, quick of hearing, and every part performs its office. The reason is plain, because then life is most delicious, and ourselves most capable of enjoying it. How comes it, then, that a man of honor should so easily accept of a challenge, though at thirty and in perfect health? It is his pride that conquers his fear. For, when his pride is not concerned, this fear will appear most glaringly. If he is not used to the sea, let him but be in a storm, or if he never was ill before, have but a sore throat or a slight fever, and he will show a thousand anxieties, and in them the inestimable value he sets on life. Had man been naturally humble and proof against flattery, the politician could never have had his ends, or known what to have made of him. Without vices, the excellency of the species would have ever remained undiscovered, and every worthy that has made himself famous in the world is a strong evidence against this amiable system. If the courage of the great Macedonian came up to distraction when he fought alone against a whole garrison, his madness was not less when he fancied himself to be a god, or at least doubted whether he was or not. And as soon as we make this reflection, we discover both the passion and the extravagancy of it, that buoyed up his spirits in the most imminent dangers, and carried him through all the difficulties and fatigues he underwent. There never was in the world a brighter example of an able and complete magistrate than Cicero. When I think on his care and vigilance, the real hazards he slighted, and the pains he took for the safety of Rome, his wisdom and sagacity in detecting and disappointing the stratagems of the boldest and most subtle conspirators, and, at the same time, on his love to literature, arts, and sciences, his capacity in metaphysics, the justness of his reasonings, the force of his eloquence, 
the politeness of his style, and the genteel spirit that runs through his writings, when I think, I say, on all these things together, I am struck with amazement, and the least I can say of him is that he was a prodigious man. But when I have set the many good qualities he had in the best light, it is as evident to me on the other side, that had his vanity been inferior to his greatest excellency, the good sense and knowledge of the world he was so eminently possessed of could never have let him be such a fulsome as well as noisy trumpeter as he was of his own praises, or suffered him rather than not proclaim his own merit, to make a verse that a schoolboy would have been laughed at for. Oh, fortunatam, etc. How strict and severe was the morality of rigid Cato! How steadily and unaffected the virtue of that grand asserter of Roman liberty! But though the equivalent this Stoic enjoyed, for all the self-denial and austerity he practiced, remained long concealed, and his peculiar modesty hid from the world, and perhaps himself a vast while, the frailty of his heart that forced him into heroism, yet it was brought to light in the last scene of his life, and by his suicide it plainly appeared that he was governed by a tyrannical power, superior to the love of his country, and that the implacable hatred and superlative envy he bore to the glory, the real greatness and personal merit of Caesar, had for a long time swayed all his actions under the most noble pretenses. Had not this violent motive overruled his consummate prudence, he might not only have saved himself, but likewise most of his friends that were ruined by the loss of him, and would in all probability, if he could have stooped to it, been the second man in Rome. But he knew the boundless mind and unlimited generosity of the victor. It was his clemency he feared, and therefore chose death, because it was less terrible to his pride than the thoughts of giving his mortal foe so tempting an opportunity of showing the magnanimity of his soul, as Caesar would have found in forgiving such an inveterate enemy as Cato, and offering him his friendship, and which, it is thought by the judicious, that penetrating as well as ambitious conqueror would not have slipped, if the other had dared to live. Another argument to prove the kind disposition and real affection we naturally have for our species is our love of company, and the aversion men that are in their senses generally have to solitude beyond other creatures. This bears a fine gloss in the characteristics, and is set off in very good language to the best advantage. The next day after I read it first, I heard abundance of people cry fresh herrings, which, with a reflection on the vast shoals of that and other fish that are caught together, made me very merry, though I was alone. But as I was entertaining myself with this contemplation, came an impertinent idle fellow, whom I had the misfortune to be known by, and asked me how I did, though I was, and dare say, looked as healthy and as well as ever I was or did in my life. What I answered him I forgot, but remember that I could not get rid of him in a good while, and felt all the uneasiness my friend Horace complains of from a persecution of the like nature. I would have no sagacious critic pronounce me a man-hater from this short story. Whoever does is very much mistaken. I am a great lover of company, and if the reader is not quite tired with mine, before I show the weakness and ridicule of that piece of flattery made to our species, and which I was just now speaking of, I will give him a description of the man I would choose for conversation, with a promise that before he has finished, what at first he might only take for a digression foreign to my purpose, he shall find the use of it. By early and artful instruction, he should be thoroughly imbued with the notions of honor and shame, 
and have contracted an habitual aversion to everything that has the least tendency to impudence, rudeness, or inhumanity. He should be well versed in the Latin tongue and not ignorant of the Greek, and moreover understand one or two of the modern languages besides his own. He should be acquainted with the fashions and customs of the ancients, but thoroughly skilled in the history of his own country and the manners of the age he lives in. He should, besides literature, have studied some useful science or other, seen some foreign courts and universities, and made the true use of traveling. He should at times take delight in dancing, fencing, riding the great horse, and knowing something of hunting and other country sports without being attached to any. And he should treat them all as either exercises for health or diversions that should never interfere with business or the attaining to more valuable qualifications. He should have a smatch of geometry and astronomy, as well as anatomy, and the economy of human bodies. To understand music so as to perform is an accomplishment, but there is abundance to be said against it, and instead of it I would have him know so much of drawing as is required to take a landscape, or explain one's meaning of any form or model we would describe, but never to touch a pencil. He should be very early used to the company of modest women, and never be a fortnight without conversing with the ladies. Gross vices as irreligion, whoring, gaming, drinking, and quarreling, I will not mention. Even the meanest education guards us against them. I would always recommend to him the practice of virtue, but I am for no voluntary ignorance, in a gentleman, of anything that is done in court or city. It is impossible a man should be perfect, and therefore there are faults I would connive at, if I could not prevent them, and if between the years of nineteen and three and twenty, youthful heat should sometimes get the better of his chastity, so it was done with caution. Should he on some extraordinary occasion, overcome by the pressing solicitations of jovial friends, drink more than was consistent with strict sobriety, so he did it very seldom, and found it not to interfere with his health or temper. Or if by the height of his mettle, and great provocation in a just cause, he had been drawn into a quarrel, which true wisdom and a less strict adherence to the rules of honor might have declined or prevented, so it never befell him above once. If I say he should have happened to be guilty of these things, and he would never speak, much less brag of them himself, they might be pardoned, or at least overlooked at the age I named, if he left off then and continued discreet forever after. The very disasters of youth have sometimes frightened gentlemen into a more steady prudence than in all probability they would ever have been masters of without them. To keep him from turpitude and things that are openly scandalous, there is nothing better than to procure him free access in one or two noble families, where his frequent attendance is counted a duty, and while by that means you preserve his pride, he is kept in a continual dread of shame. A man of a tolerable fortune, pretty near accomplished as I have required him to be, that still improves himself and sees the world till he is thirty, cannot be disagreeable to converse with, at least while he continues in health and prosperity, and has nothing to spoil his temper. When such a one, either by chance or appointment, meets with three or four of our equals, and all agree to pass away a few hours together, the whole is what I call good company. There is nothing said in it that is not either instructive or diverting to a man of sense. It is possible they may not always be of the same opinion, but there can be no contest between any, but who shall yield first to the other he differs from. One only speaks at a time, and no louder than to be plainly understood by him who sits the farthest off. The greatest pleasure aimed at by every one of them is to have the satisfaction of pleasing others, 
which they all practically know may as effectually be done by hearkening with attention and an approving countenance as we said very good things ourselves. Most people of taste would like such a conversation, and justly prefer it to being alone when they knew not how to spend their time, but if they could employ themselves in something from which they expected, either a more solid or a more lasting satisfaction, they would deny themselves this pleasure, and follow what was of greater consequence to them. But would not a man, though he had seen no mortal in a fortnight, remain alone as much longer rather than get into company of noisy fellows that take delight in contradiction and place a glory in picking a quarrel? Would not one that has books read forever, or set himself to write upon some subject or other, rather than be every night with party men who count the island to be good for nothing, while their adversaries are suffered to live upon it? Would not a man be by himself a month, and go to bed before seven o'clock, rather than mix with fox-hunters, who having all day long tried in vain to break their necks, join at night in a second attempt upon their lives by drinking, and to express their mirth, are louder and senseless sounds within doors than their barking and less troublesome companions are only without. I have no great value for a man who would not rather tire himself with walking, or if he was shut up, scatter pins about the room in order to pick them up again, than keep company for six hours with half a score common sailors the day their ship was paid off. I will grant, nevertheless, that the greatest part of mankind, rather than be alone any considerable time, would submit to the things I named. But I cannot see why this love of company, this strong desire after society, should be construed so much in our favor, and alleged as a mark of some intrinsic worth in man not to be found in other animals. For to prove from it the goodness of our nature, and a generous love in man extended beyond himself on the rest of his species, by virtue of which he was a sociable creature, this eagerness after company and aversion of being alone ought to have been most conspicuous and most violent in the best of their kind. The men of the greatest genius, parts, and accomplishments, and those who are the least subject to vice, the contrary of which is true. The weakest minds, who can the least govern their passions, guilty consciences that abhor reflection, and the worthless, who are incapable of producing anything of their own that is useful, are the greatest enemies to solitude, and will take up with any company rather than be without, whereas the men of sense and knowledge, that can think and contemplate on things, and such as are but little disturbed by their passions, can bear to be by themselves the longest without reluctancy, and, to avoid noise, folly, and impertinence, will run away from twenty companies, and rather than meet with anything disagreeable to their good taste, will prefer their closet or garden, nay, a common or a desert, to the society of some men. But let us suppose the love of company is so inseparable from our species that no man could endure to be alone one moment. What conclusions could be drawn from this? Does not man love company as he does everything else for his own sake? No friendships or civilities are lasting that are not reciprocal. In all your weekly and daily meetings for diversion, as well as annual feasts and the most solemn carousels, every member that assists at them has his own ends, and some frequent a club which they would never go to unless they were the top of it. I have known a man who was the oracle of the company, be very constant, and as uneasy at anything that hindered him from coming at the hour, leave his society altogether, 
as soon as another was added that could match, and disputed superiority with him. There are people who are incapable of holding an argument, and yet malicious enough to take delight in hearing others wrangle, and though they never concern themselves in the controversy, would think a company insipid where they could not have that diversion. A good house, rich with furniture, a fine garden, horses, dogs, ancestors, relations, beauty, strength, excellency in anything whatever, vices as well as virtue, may all be accessory to make men long for society, in hopes that what they value themselves upon will at one time or other become the theme of the discourse, and give an inward satisfaction to them. Even the most polite people in the world, and such as I spoke of at first, give no pleasure to others that is not repaid of their self-love, and does not at last center in themselves. Let them wind it and turn it as they will. But the plainest demonstration that in all clubs and societies of conversable people, everybody has the greatest consideration for himself, is that the disinterested, who rather overpays than wrangles, the good-humored, that is never waspish nor soon offended, the easy and indolent, that hates disputes and never talks for triumph, is everywhere the darling of the company, whereas the man of sense and knowledge that will not be imposed upon or talked out of his reason, the man of genius and spirit that can say sharp and witty things, though he never lashes but what deserves it, the man of honor who neither gives nor takes an affront, may be esteemed, but is seldom so well beloved as a weaker man less accomplished. As in these instances, the friendly qualities arise from our contriving perpetually our own satisfaction, so, on other occasions, they proceed from the natural timidity of man, and the solicitous care he takes of himself. Two Londoners, whose businesses oblige them not to have any commerce together, may know, see, and pass by one another every day upon the exchange, with not much greater civility than bulls would. Let them meet at Bristol, they will pull off their hats, and on the least opportunity enter into conversation, and be glad of one another's company. When French, English, and Dutch meet in China, or any other pagan country, being all Europeans, they look upon one another as countrymen, and if no passion interferes, will feel a natural propensity to love one another. Nay, two men that are at enmity, if they are forced to travel together, will often lay by their animosities, be affable, and converse in a friendly manner, especially if the road be unsafe and they are both strangers in the place they are to go to. These things by superficial judges are attributed to man's sociableness, his natural propensity to friendship and love of company, but whoever will duly examine things and look into man more narrowly will find that on all these occasions we only endeavor to strengthen our interest, and are moved by the causes already alleged. What I have endeavored hitherto has been to prove that the pulchrum et honestum excellency and real worth of things are most commonly precarious and alterable as modes and customs vary that consequently the inferences drawn from their certainty are insignificant and that the generous notions concerning the natural goodness of man are hurtful as they tend to mislead and are merely chimerical the truth of this latter i have illustrated by the most obvious examples in history i have spoke of our love of company and aversion to solitude examined thoroughly the various motives of them, and made it appear that they all center in self-love. I intend now to investigate into the nature of society, and diving into the very rise of it, make it evident that not the good and amiable, but the bad and hateful qualities of man, his imperfections and the want of excellencies, 
which other creatures are endued with, are the first causes that made man sociable beyond other animals, the moment after he lost paradise, and that if he had remained in his primitive innocence and continued to enjoy the blessings that attended it, there is no shadow of probability that he ever would have become that sociable creature he is now. How necessary our appetites and passions are for the welfare of all trades and handicrafts has been sufficiently proved throughout the book, and that they are our bad qualities, or at least produce them, nobody denies. It remains, then, that I should set forth the variety of obstacles that hinder and perplex man in the labor he is constantly employed in, the procuring of what he wants, and which, in other words, is called the business of self-preservation, while, at the same time, I demonstrate that the sociableness of man arises only from these two things, viz., the multiplicity of his desires and the continual opposition he meets with in his endeavors to gratify them. The obstacles I speak of relate either to our own frame or the globe we inhabit, I mean the condition of it, since it has been cursed. I have often endeavored to contemplate separately on the two things I named last, but could never keep them asunder. They always interfere and mix with one another, and at last make up together a frightful chaos of evil. All the elements are our enemies, water drowns and fire consumes those who unskillfully approach them, the earth in a thousand places produces plants and other vegetables that are hurtful to man, while she feeds and cherishes a variety of creatures that are noxious to him, and suffers a legion of poisons to dwell within her. But the most unkind of all the elements is that which we cannot live one moment without. It is impossible to repeat all the injuries we receive from the wind and weather, and though the greatest part of mankind have ever been employed in defending their species from the inclemency of the air, yet no art or labor have hitherto been able to find a security against the wild rage of some meteors. Hurricanes, it is true, happen but seldom, and few men are swallowed up by earthquakes or devoured by lions. But while we escape those gigantic mischiefs, we are persecuted by trifles. What a vast variety of insects are tormenting us, what multitudes of them insult and make game of us with impunity. The most despicable scruple not to trample and graze upon us as cattle do upon a field, which yet is often born with, if moderately they use their fortune. But here again our clemency becomes a vice, and so encroaching are their cruelty and contempt of us on our pity that they make lay-stalls of our hands and devour our young ones if we are not daily vigilant in pursuing and destroying them. There is nothing good in all the universe to the best designing man, if either through mistake or ignorance he commits the least failing in the use of it. There is no innocence or integrity that can protect a man from a thousand mischiefs that surround him. On the contrary, everything is evil, which art and experience have not taught us to turn into a blessing. Therefore how diligent in harvest time is the husbandman in getting in his crop and sheltering it from rain, without which he could never have enjoyed it. As seasons differ with the climates, experience has taught us differently to make use of them. And in one part of the globe we may see the farmer sow while he is reaping in the other, from all which we may learn how vastly this earth must have been altered since the fall of our first parents. For should we trace man from his beautiful, his divine original, not proud of wisdom acquired by haughty precept or tedious experience, but endued with consummate knowledge the moment he was formed, I mean the state of innocence, in which no animal nor vegetable upon earth, nor mineral underground was noxious to him, 
and himself secured from the injuries of the air as well as all other harms, was contented with the necessities of life, which the globe he inhabited furnished him with without his assistance. When yet not conscious of guilt, he found himself in every place to be the well-obeyed, unrivaled lord of all, and unaffected with his greatness, was wholly wrapped up in sublime meditations on the infinity of his creator, who daily did vouchsafe intelligibly to speak to him and visit without mischief. In such a golden age, no reason or probability can be alleged why mankind ever should have raised themselves into such large societies as there have been in the world, as long as we can give any tolerable account of it, where a man has everything he desires and nothing to vex or disturb him, there is nothing can be added to his happiness, and it is impossible to name a trade, art, science, dignity, or employment that would not be superfluous in such a blessed state. If we pursue this thought, we shall easily perceive that no societies could have sprung from the amiable virtues and loving qualities of man, but, on the contrary, that all of them must have had the origin from his wants, his imperfections, and the variety of his appetites. We shall find likewise that the more their pride and vanity are displayed, and all their desires enlarged, the more capable they must be of being raised into large and vastly numerous societies. Was the air always as inoffensive to our naked bodies, and as pleasant as to our thinking it is to the generality of birds in fair weather? and man had not been affected with pride, luxury, and hypocrisy, as well as lust. I cannot see what could have put us upon the invention of clothes and houses. I shall say nothing of jewels, of plate, painting, sculpture, fine furniture, and all that rigid moralists have called unnecessary and superfluous. But if we were not soon tired with walking afoot, and were as nimble as some other animals, if men were naturally laborious, and none unreasonable in seeking and indulging their ease, and likewise free from other vices, and the ground was everywhere even, solid and clean, who would have thought of coaches or ventured on a horse's back? What occasion has the dolphin for a ship? Or what carriage would an eagle ask to travel in? I hope the reader knows that by society I understand a body politic, in which man either subdued by superior force, or by persuasion drawn from his savage state, is become a disciplined creature, that can find his own ends in laboring for others, and where under one head, or other form of government, each member is rendered subservient to the whole, and all of them by cunning management are made to act as one. For if by society we only mean a number of people, that without rule or government should keep together, out of a natural affection to their species, or love of company, as a herd of cows or a flock of sheep, then there is not in the world a more unfit creature for society than man. An hundred of them that should all be equals, under no subjection, or fear of any superior upon earth, could never live together awake two hours without quarreling, and the more knowledge, strength, wit, courage, and resolution there was among them, the worse it would be. It is probable that in the wild state of nature parents would keep a superiority over their children, at least while they were in strength, and that even afterwards the remembrance of what the others had experienced might produce in them something between love and fear, which we call reverence. It is probable likewise that the second generation following the example of the first, a man with a little cunning would always be able, as long as he lived and had his senses, to maintain a superior sway over all his own offspring and descendants, 
how numerous soever they might grow. But the stock once dead, the sons would quarrel, and there could be no peace long before there had been war. Eldership in brothers is of no great force, and the preeminence that is given to it is only invented as a shift to live in peace. Man, as he is a fearful animal, naturally not rapacious, loves peace and quiet, and he would never fight if nobody offended him, and he could have what he fights for without it. To this fearful disposition, and the aversion he has to his being disturbed, are owing all the various projects and forms of government. Monarchy, without doubt, was the first. Aristocracy and democracy are two different methods of mending the inconveniencies of the first, and a mixture of these three, and improvement on all the rest. But be we savages or politicians, it is impossible that man, mere fallen man, should act with any other view but to please himself while he has the use of his organs, and the greatest extravagancy either of love or despair can have no other center. There is no difference between will and pleasure in one sense, and every motion made in spite of them must be unnatural and convulsive. Since, then, action is so confined, and we are always forced to do what we please, and at the same time our thoughts are free and uncontrolled, it is impossible we could be sociable creatures without hypocrisy. The proof of this is plain, since we cannot prevent the ideas that are continually arising within us, all civil commerce would be lost if, by art and prudent dissimulation, we had not learned to hide and stifle them, and if all we think was to be laid open to others in the same manner as it is to ourselves, it is impossible that, endued with speech, we could be sufferable to one another. I am persuaded that every reader feels the truth of what I say, and I tell my antagonist that his conscience flies in his face while his tongue is preparing to refute me. In all civil societies, men are taught insensibly to be hypocrites from their cradle. Nobody dares to own that he gets by public calamities, or even by the loss of private persons. The sexton would be stoned should he wish openly for the death of the parishioners, though everybody knew that he had nothing else to live upon. End of section 29